I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, it's the second of our special editions of Little Atoms in association with the 2015 Royal Society Winter Prize for Science Books and another two interviews with shortlisted authors. Coming up are interviews with David Adam and then a repeat of our August 2014 interview with Guy Vins. Incidentally, this show also marks the 10th anniversary of Little Atoms. We first started broadcasting on Resonance FM on the 16th of September 2005. If you've been listening all that time, thank you. Dr David Adam is a writer and editor at Nature, the world's top scientific journal. Before that, he was a specialist correspondent on The Guardian for seven years, writing on science, medicine and the environment. During this time, he was named Feature Writer of the Year by the Association of British Science Writers and reported from Antarctica, the Arctic, China and the depths of the Amazon jungle. David is the author of The Man Who Couldn't Stop, OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought, which has been shortlisted for the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. David, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thanks. OCD, it's something that, I think it's something that everyone will have heard of and they will have an idea of what it is, and that idea is probably wrong. And that confusion really goes back from the, the very first start of when this was sort of classified as a disorder, doesn't it? Yeah, we can talk about what it isn't in a minute, I suppose, but for what it is, I mean, it stands for obsessive-compulsive disorder, and it's worth breaking that down a little. Obsessions... Uh, are thoughts, they're just really weird thoughts that people can't get out of their head. And compulsions are usually physical behaviours, but not always, that people with OCD develop almost always as a way of trying to handle these thoughts that they can't make go away. And then when you get the obsessions and the compulsions working together in a way that, that creates a really damaging sort of feedback loop, then that has an effect on someone's life and it's, and it's called a disorder. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's been mired in, in misunderstanding really right from the beginning because, as you sort of alluded to at the beginning of the 20th century, there wasn't the term OCD, and this is partly because what we now think of as psychiatry was almost all done mm-hmm. in German. So Sigmund Freud coined the term um, Zwangsneuros to describe what we would now think of as OCD. And when sort of psychiatry and indeed science took off in the United Kingdom and the United States, we translated it differently. So in one place, like it was in America, they translated it as compulsion. So they translated Zwangsneuros as mm-hmm. compulsion. And in the UK, it was obsession. It may be the other way around. But anyway, we translated it differently. And, um, of course, this created a bit of a problem when they 
realised that their colleagues were using a different term to describe the same condition, so they just bung them together and put a hyphen in between them and said, right, it's now obsessive-compulsive disorder. And of course, more confusion was spread there by the fact that, as in so many other things, Freud got it wrong as well, really, didn't he? He wasn't right about it. No, he wasn't right about it. But, I mean, I'm quite rude about Freud in the book, and I've been, I've been picked up on it by a lot of people. Uh, but I do defend, because Freud's ideas were, as you know, they're about the subconscious and about sort of sexual imagery and symbolism. And I think... As a theoretical idea, you could understand it, but the problem with my have with Freud's ideas was that they weren't just theoretical, they were the basis for a clinical uh, attempt to help people, which was defended against uh, evidence which suggested it wasn't going to work, mm-hmm. and actually I think did quite a lot of damage, because it, it sort of dominated for 40 or 50 years. Now we all know people who will say, oh I'm a little bit OCD, when what they really mean is they're tidy. So again, there's a confusion is sort of spread by the fact that there's a sort of parallel condition, which is an obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Yeah, so so you can have you can have an obsessive personality, mm-hmm. and there is there is actually a, a syndrome or a disorder called obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and that's that's sort of the moniker from Friends. Yeah, you know that's the someone who likes things to be just so they like things to be tidy, they like things to be clean, and they like things to be done in a certain way. It is confused with OCD, and, and that's largely because sometimes OCD can show itself in that way because some of the compulsions can be cleaning or they can be hand-washing or they can be arranging things in symmetrical patterns. But the key difference, and this is what people miss, is, is the motive. Yeah. So in an obsessive personality, you're cleaning because you really like things to be clean. You, know, you, you take pride in it, you're yeah. happy doing that, you, you, know, you don't understand why other people don't want to do that as well you know you want to spread the word mm-hmm. whereas in OCD if you have a cleaning compulsion you know, might wash your hands or you might scrub the toilet you, you don't want to be doing that you fact, you'd rather be doing anything else it's just that that's the only way you were found to take some control back mm-hmm. of these dreadful thoughts and so the, I think the way I describe it in the book it's a bit like OCD is is hell for the sufferer um, but actually most people around them, mm-hmm. they might not even know, whereas an obsessive personality is hell for everybody else yeah. because they're constantly being badgered, you know, don't leave crumbs there, don't do this. And, and it tends to be all-consuming in a completely different way because someone with OCD, they might wash their hands ten times an hour, but then they could wear the same underpants for a month. You know, it's, it's not a love of cleanliness yeah. or hygiene, it's a very specific compulsive behaviour. And to put that on a more sort of scientific footing, I guess, you make the distinction in the book between uh, two different types of thought, which are ego-dystonic and ego-syntonic. So let's talk about what the difference between those two is. Yeah, so, so everyone has bad thoughts. Everyone has thoughts that make them anxious or stressed or keep them up at night. And, and you can divide those in that way. And let's say I was nervous about coming to do this interview. Okay. And that might make me anxious. It might maybe I didn't sleep last night because mm-hmm. I was anxious about it. But that that makes sense because I know uh, lots of people are going to listen to it. I don't want them to think that I'm an idiot. Yeah. You know, I, I want to give a good impression. Maybe mm-hmm. they're going to go out and buy the book. Um, so that's all. I'm anxious about it, but for a good so reason. For a rational reason. For a rational anxious, reason. Yeah. Ego dystonic thoughts are the thoughts that they challenge the kind of person that we want to be. So rather than a thought that we sort of accept as being in line with mm-hmm. our view of ourselves, this might be a thought to hurt somebody or to stab somebody or to sexually assault somebody or to blaspheme or to jump out in front of a train. And 
those thoughts, as well as the direct anxiety of, I'm going to jump in front of a train, you also have that sort of meta anxiety, which is, well, why on earth am I thinking that? Because I'm not suicidal. And so to have the thought itself is distressing, Mm -hmm. as well as the content of the thought. And in most people, those ego dystonic thoughts, people will experience them and then they'll go, oh, that was a bit weird, and then they'll get on with the rest of their life. But for some reason, uh, in OCD, those ego dystonic thoughts, they don't just pass on, they stick. And people then have to find a strategy to deal with that. And of course, as you just sort of implied, everybody has those intrusive thoughts. And sometimes, you know, when you see them listed and you talk about, you know, some scientific surveys that have been done of people in the book, um, when you see them listed down and the thoughts that people have, they are often, you know, horrible, quite shocking things. And, you know, I have them. I have that sometimes, you know, weird or violent thoughts. And and they they are shocking when you have them. But of course, they're shocking because you immediately go, well, um, wouldn't obviously wouldn't sort of act on those things and actually I think ironically people that have OCD when they learn that other people have those they, they, they tend to think that they're the only person that does this thing mm. don't they mm. well it's, it's a bit like you know if you've got nits people mm. say nits only go for clean hair don't they as if that's meant to reassure you well it's a bit like these thoughts they stand out because they're so alien to the kind of person that you are so if you get thoughts about stabbing someone that causes you great distress, Mm -hmm. that shows you're the kind of person who would not go out and stab somebody. You know, the people you need to worry about are those who have thoughts about stabbing someone and it just seems normal to them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cause them any distress. But because by definition they're the thoughts that we don't want to to have ourselves, we certainly don't want other people to know that we have them Mm -hmm. either. And that's why we tend to keep them to ourselves. And in fact... You know, we're discussing, that, oh, everybody has these thoughts. But that was only discovered in the 70s. Yeah. You know, we put a man on the moon before we realised that almost all human beings have these really odd, strange, distressing, bizarre thoughts that we keep to ourselves. And when I, I do talks and, you know, I meet people and, I, and I, sometimes people say to me, what's your book about? And I say, well, do you ever get that thought when, you know, you're on the top of a, a high bridge and you might get an urge to jump off? And they look at me like I've read their mind. Now, I mean, you've just mentioned that that's only really been really only widely understood since the 1970s, and also that OCD as a as a syndrome has only really been identified in from the early 20th century. And a lot of things that are similar, things that you would find in the DSM, for instance, latterly, are things that tend to you know they'd be devil the the rich, comfortable West. Is OCD a thing that's found everywhere? It is, yeah. And in fact, although it's only been called OCD since the early 20th century, there's evidence that, as a problem, has been around for as long as we've been keeping records. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there there are reports going back two millennia of people having intrusive thoughts. Now, Mm -hmm. these are, because of the culture at the time, a lot of these are in a religious context. So many very influential religious figures from a long time ago would Mm -hmm. report how they had thoughts of worshipping the devil. And we still have that, in fact, as a form of OCD, Mm -hmm. where it it affects religious people. So there's no evidence at all. In fact, all the evidence suggests that it is a common part of the human experience. And there are cases, uh, there are clinical cases reported from, you know, Africa, the Middle East, South America, Russia, China, Japan... Um, it doesn't seem to respect any national boundaries, any, geog- any geographical boundaries, any boundaries of race or, or culture. It affects men and women. It mm-hmm. affects young and old. I mean, clearly there, is, there are some people who are more likely than others, you know, like particular ages. Yeah. But what does seem to change is the way in which it manifests itself. 
So, you know, for example, if you live in a country where they don't have trains, you're not going to have OCD about jumping in front yeah. of a train, mm-hmm. clearly. But you might have it about... I mean, there was an example in the book of a, a girl who lived in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia who had OCD around a mud wall mm-hmm. in her house. You know, Now, no one in the UK, I imagine, has OCD around a mud wall. But the symptoms are the same. It's just the subject of the thoughts which changes with the, with the culture and the times. And her compulsion, how she dealt with that, was... Was to eat it, yeah, which is completely irrational. Uh, you know, she had these really odd thoughts about the wall that she couldn't make go away, mm-hmm. and she tried everything and then found that, for some reason, eating bits of the wall seemed to help, and so she did it. Just to finish off this, this section then, let's just, I guess, recap. What's the, what's the sort of current science? What's the current neuroscience or whatever understanding? Where are we now? Well, it depends who you ask. If you mm. ask a neuroscientist, they'll tell you about circuits in the brain which have been identified as working slightly differently. Uh, you know, if you ask a, a psychologist, they'll talk to you about patterns of thinking and cognitive dysfunction like the, the thought-action fusion that we talked about. You know, if you talk to a psychiatrist, they'll say, well, it could be down to brain chemicals and neurotransmitters, so take this antidepressant. Um, and in reality, it's probably all a bit of both, and it's quite a bit of all of those, and it's difficult to pick out what has gone wrong. I think it comes down to two questions, which is what can explain why somebody, why two people who have these thoughts, one of them might develop OCD and one doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're looking at there is a, is a contribution of genetics, a family background, I think probably your personality type, all of which can make you more susceptible to then the trigger events, which can be a trauma. You know, we know that people who have suffered a mental trauma or even a physical trauma can develop OCD symptoms. And then I think that the question is, well, what do we know helps people? And we know that teaching people about thoughts and about where they come from and how they don't really signify anything, which is sort of a cognitive treatment, mm-hmm. works. And we think we have a reasonably good grasp of the evidence for that. And then there are treatments like drugs, uh, like antidepressants, which seem to work, but we're not quite sure why. But certainly, if, if someone was to go to their GP in the UK tomorrow with OCD, they would probably be prescribed a mixture of um, antidepressants and cognitive behavioural therapy. I'm Irving Finkel, and you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Into Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to David Adam. We're talking about his book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop, OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought, which has just been shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. So David, this book is a history of the story of OCD and the survey of the current science, but it's also a memoir because for over 20 years you've suffered from OCD yourself. So tell me how that 
Well, how it first manifested itself, first of all. Well, I have... um, uh, My OCD is the same, and it has been for 20 years, and it's around an irrational fear of HIV. So I grew up in the 80s with all those terrible adverts uh, that anyone in my age will remember. Mm -hmm. HIV and AIDS was this great cultural fear, you know, it almost replaced nuclear weapons overnight as the thing that everyone was frightened of. Mm -hmm. When I was at university, I just developed irrational fears of HIV. So all the ways that we were told you can't catch it, which previously I just sort of accepted, well, you know, you can't catch it that way, I was now paranoid about. And then I invented new ways that I thought I could catch it. Mm -hmm. And, And this was my obsession and my way of responding to that, which was my compulsion, was to usually just to seek reassurance that I couldn't have caught HIV in that way so I would ring hotlines and talk to people I would talk to doctors I would um, go back for example if I cut myself on a piece of glass you know my mind would say to me my obsessions would say to me there could have been blood on that piece of glass someone else could have cut themselves on Mm -hmm. that piece of glass before you and they could have had HIV and it could be on there in their blood and it could have got into your system and so I would go back and I would find the piece of glass and I would dab it with tissue paper to try and convinced myself that there was no blood on it and once you get into that cycle of Mm -hmm. course you know you always say to yourself did I check carefully enough I should check not just the piece of glass but around the piece of glass maybe there are other pieces of glass and you just take it to the nth degree where Mm -hmm. you can never be satisfied that there was zero risk of that happening and so you'd cut yourself on a piece of glass you bleed you'd worry about it you'd go out to a phone box you'd ring up a helpline, an AIDS helpline, and say, I've just cut myself on a piece of glass, can I catch AIDS? They would say, they no, would say no, you can't. Yeah. And then what? Well, they would, they, they would say, no, you can't. The risk is very low. And I would say, thanks very much. I put the phone down, and then I think, uh, wait, very low, so that's not zero. So maybe they didn't quite understand, and if I'd explained it slightly differently, maybe they would say, oh, yeah, you know what, that is something to worry about. So I'd ring them back and I'd say the same and I'd say, I just rang you about this piece of glass. What if it was you know, a bit bigger or what if it was fresher blood mm-hmm. than, I, than I originally suggested? And they'd say, no, no, still very low. And I would go around in this cycle where I would get that... I, I wanted to call them because I wanted that hit of reassurance. And every time I thought, I just need them to tell me it one more time, then I'll believe mm-hmm. it. Then I'll believe it. And of course, like, you never do. And then they would, they would start to recognise my voice. you know, And they'd start to say, oh yeah, you're that guy who just rang. Yeah, no we've told you you just have to go away and accept it and I didn't want that because then I didn't get that hit of them telling me nothing to worry about so I would call back and I would disguise my voice or I would put on accents or I would invent scenarios that were just close enough to the original one to make it sound different so they would say Mm -hmm. to me no you know you haven't got anything to worry about and all the while I was fueling these obsessive thoughts so this does sound like you know being obsessed with the idea that you might get AIDS might sound to people to be a, a quite an obscure and unusual thing to, to be obsessed with. But that idea of, of obsessing over something that's current in the culture or the media is actually really common. It is. Well, we just we, just, we talked earlier about yeah. how OCD shows itself in different cultural ways. It turns out, you know, I, I thought I was the only person in the world who had these crazy thoughts about HIV. Mm-hmm. But at the time, something like a third of all OCD patients in the US had obsessions about HIV. It was mm-hmm. so common. It was so common. And then HIV, you know, I describe this to people now, and they say to me, why do you worry about AIDS? And I say, how old are you? And they say, oh, I'm 20. I'm like, well, there you go. Because, you know, you didn't grow up when I grew up. And it was... Mm-hmm. But now you get lots of people with OCD around climate change. So they worry about, you know, leaving taps on or lights on. And, and not because of any security mm-hmm. issues, but because of their responsibility for the planet. I mean, it's quite unpleasant, but you get people 
now who can't rule out that they might have sexually abused somebody in the past mm-hmm. because of all the attention to paedophilia, Jimmy Savile and, and stuff. And historically, you know, in the 60s, there was lots of OCD around asbestos, the mm-hmm. risks of asbestos, because that was the big public fear that everyone was afraid of. In the 20s, it was syphilis. You know, there were, I've found cases in the Lancet from more than a century ago, people identical symptoms to me, but it was syphilis. You know, they had no symptoms, they were, they were tested, if, if you could be tested, whatever they did was said that, you know, you don't have syphilis, they couldn't accept it, they started to worry that they were going to pass it on to their families. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same, but clearly syphilis isn't an issue for me, and in 100 years or 50 years, maybe HIV won't mm-hmm. be an issue for anybody and it'll be something else, and I'll be a historic curiosity. But trust me, in 1989... <laughs> If you were going to be scared of something, mm-hmm. it was HIV. I remember, and that's, it's entirely, again, it's a, it's a rational fear taken to an extreme because it was presented. I mean, in the way that now people talk about, you know, Ebola or bird flu or something, it was described, it was apocalyptic plague. That was the imagery that, that we were sold in. It was, and if anybody listening wasn't around at the time, I would say just Google or go onto YouTube and find a video that the Australian government produced... You just Google like Australia HIV advert, and here's the kicker: Grim Reaper. <laughs> You'll see what we're talking about. I mean, it's it's still with you now. Obviously, things have changed, and we'll talk about that later on. But certainly, for you know, for the first few years of this obsession, how did it affect your day to day life? It's just what I thought about all the time. But OCD is, for mine anyway, was very portable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you take it with you. Uh, you worry about things wherever you are. And it was... I feel a lot better now, and even I can't really fully accept how much it was on my mind. Mm-hmm. But it was just constant. The first thing I'd think about when I woke up in the morning, the last thing I thought about when I went to bed at night, and pretty much all I thought about in between. And I could do other things. You know, I was at university. I could go to lectures, and I could have a conversation with friends. I would go out, and I'd, mm-hmm. you know... But it was always there. It was always there, just like something that I was carrying with me. Except for very, very rare things that I was distracted myself or Mm -hmm. was distracted by but yeah it's constant and so how long did it take before you recognised that this this is what it was that this wasn't you weren't the only person that was doing this and that you had OCD which was a recognisable syndrome so I think it was after about four or five years I went to see a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and he said yeah you've got OCD do you want to come to a, a help group you know, and I was like, well, no, because I don't see why people with OCD would understand what I'm going through. And he would say, he said, actually said to me, I'm seeing three other people at this university who have this exact same form of OCD about HIV, which made me feel better in a way. But the treatment they gave me at the time was an elastic band. You know, mm-hmm. it was like snap it against your wrist when you have one of these thoughts, which didn't work. And then it took another, I don't know, ten or maybe slightly longer before I years before I went back and got proper help. And so, yeah, you, you went through a, a sort of series of inappropriate and ineffective treatments. Yeah, well, it was largely just that, really. Over history, people have gone through a series of, you know, of quite bizarre treatments. But, but for me, I went, I was given the elastic band, that didn't work. And the next time I really got help or tried to get help, I was lucky and ended up getting very good treatment. And so, well, CBT, that's the, that's the one that seems to be effective. So. Yeah, so as far as we described, you get. I'm on a quite a high dose of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. You know, I, have, I take them every day and have done for five years and probably will do forever. Not that we're depressed; it just seems to work, and they don't, they're not quite sure why. It just helps. And I had a course of CBT in which they both teach you about some of these 
thought processes that we talked about and also they, they do what's called exposure and response prevention therapy which, mm-hmm. you, which you basically you deliberately poke someone's anxieties or obsessions with a big stick get them very anxious and then you stop them performing the compulsions mm-hmm. because we do that to make ourselves feel better so if I was worried about AIDS it made sense for me to ask someone can I cut AIDS like that and they would say no and I would start to feel better mm-hmm. although only for a very short time so they stop you doing the compulsions or that, well they ask you not to do them in the old days they actually used to physically restrain people you know mm-hmm. someone had a, an obsession about rubbish germs and rubbish they'd make them you know root through a bin and then they would tie their hands down so they couldn't wash them which is all they wanted to do and and the theory is that if you get the anxiety that high and stop people taking that quick route out then the anxiety goes down in time and once you learn that it goes down you have more confidence that it will go down again in the future so mm-hmm. that that's pretty much how I live my life now I still have intrusive irrational thoughts about HIV but I don't act upon them I just sort of let them sit there and if I'm anxious I'm anxious and then in time it goes away but one of the things in the book that comes out of the, you know, talking about techniques that don't work, techniques that aren't necessarily successful, is this this great image of um, the white bear. Let's talk mm. about this. Think of a white well, bear. So, so this this wasn't really a a clinical suggestion. This is just the instinct that you have mm-hmm. when you're thinking about something that you you don't like. I didn't want to think about how I could have caught HIV in all these different ways, and so what people sometimes try and do is to to repress that thought, to push it away to the side of the mind, which actually is counterproductive. If I say to you now, don't think of a polar bear, mm-hmm. what do you think of? And you think of a polar bear. So they did this classic experiment with students and showed that not only does trying not to think about something not work, you can't do it, mm-hmm. but also in not trying to think about it, you actually make those thoughts come more frequently. Yeah, I'll be thinking about polar bear all night now. <laughs> Yeah, and and so you know it's, it's sort of psychology which could explain why it's called like the it's called the ironic effect of thought suppression. But basically, you try not to think about something and it comes back harder. Yeah. And and you know there are implications beyond OCD. It could be that um, some people who they really want to stop smoking, they really want to stop smoking, they find mm-hmm. it the hardest. And it could be because they're trying so hard not to think about cigarettes and to push away that craving that it just rebounds back mm-hmm. at them. You know, if you're on a diet. All you can think about is eating chocolate biscuits. Well, I was going to sort of finish up talking about where you are now, but you've, you've already really covered that, but just sort of widen that out a bit. One of the, I guess one of the triggers to do something about it for you was having children. Yeah, well, it was more, much more specific than that. I started to pass on my own irrational fears to my baby daughter. She was about six months old, and I became convinced that she might have contracted HIV, that she might have, there might have been blood on a swing that she was out in the playground, she may have rubbed it into her eyes. And to try and reassure myself that that hadn't happened, I did the compulsion and I I put her in and out of the swing to watch where she put her hands. Then I could check Mm -hmm. that there was no blood where she put her hands and that would have removed the the chance. And I I put her in and out of the swing about ten times. And then I thought to myself, what are you doing? You know, this stops. This stops now. And I rang the doctors the next day. I think we should probably say, if anybody is listening to this and recognises something in themselves and is not receiving treatment, what sort of thing would you advise they did? Go to the GP. Go to your GP and say, you know, I think I've got OCD because I have these symptoms. Mm -hmm. 
Um, most GPs now will recognise what it is. Some still don't take it seriously, and they, what they should do is is refer you. You know, if if you feel that your GP isn't taking it seriously, say, hang on a minute. You know, I know there's good treatment out there. I heard this bloke talking on this podcast. You know, I want the treatment that he had because there is a tendency, you know, to pass people on to the next person up the chain, mm-hmm. and even sometimes those people, like very well-meaning people who give what's advertised as CBT, mm-hmm. it's not always the right kind of CBT for OCD. So I, trust me, I know what it's like to not want to go and talk to people about it. But once you do, you have to keep talking and keep persisting because it's a bit like a series of hurdles mm-hmm. that you have to cross. And it's, it's sad that it is like that. But there is really good treatment out there. It's just not evenly distributed. And in this book, there's like a checklist of, I guess, questions that you should expect a GP to Yeah, ask. I mean, it's, I don't think a GP would ask them, but there is... Because there's no way of diagnosing mental illness mm-hmm. in the way that we diagnose other... You know, there's no blood test, you can't do a brain scan, uh, you can't do an X-ray, mm-hmm. you can't do any of those things. All you can do is ask people how they feel and how they respond to certain situations. And the one that they do to diagnose OCD is called the Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive score. Mm-hmm. And, and it is actually, I think it's ten questions along the lines of um, how much time would you spend a day unable to get a certain thought out of your head? Mm-hmm. And if it's less than an hour, you score zero points. Is that one of those magazine, you know, like... For A, every A you get three points, every B you get one point. At the end, you add up the points. And Mm -hmm. if you've got over 30 points out of 40, you've got severe OCD. If you've got under 10, you don't have it. Mm -hmm. Which sounds horribly arbitrary, but there is no other way to diagnose what's going on in someone's head. One last question then. So what does it mean to you to be shortlisted for the prize? It's terrific. You know, that's, that's my job. I'm a professional journalist. I'm a writer. I'm really pleased because... This book was very personal to me. Mm -hmm. It's almost a book I've waited my whole life to write. And I'm just glad that other people think I did a good job because I was quite proud of it. So I've been talking to David Adam. We've been talking about his book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop, OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought. David, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you. I'm Alex Kratoski, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Gaia Vince is a journalist and broadcaster specialising in science and the environment. She's been the news editor of Nature and the online editor of The New Scientist. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The Times, Science, Scientific American, Australian Geographic and The Australian. And she has a regular column, Smart Planet, on BBC Online, and devises and presents programmes about the Anthropocene for BBC Radio. Her first book is Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made. Gaia, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Great to be here. So I've said twice in that introduction the term Anthropocene, so we're going to be... You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection... Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Begin by talking about what that means. So this is a, a big fundamental concept, essentially. What we're saying is with the Anthropocene, what it actually means is the age of humans. Mm-hmm. So it's a geological term, essentially. If you look back over the periods, the epochs, the eras that have gone before... We're familiar with the Jurassic, the mm-hmm. Cretaceous, the famous yeah. times that have gone before. And what we're saying now is that we're living in a new period, a new era, essentially, mm-hmm. which is called the Anthropocene. What we're officially living in is the Holocene. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look up in an encyclopedia, mm-hmm. where, where are we now? You would find we were living in the Holocene. Mm-hmm. But scientists are saying that we are so changing our planet that we've pushed it beyond the Holocene now. We're now living in this new era and it's defined by us because Mm -hmm. we're the biggest change. We're the biggest change makers on the planet. So it's the age of humans. When we look at one of those other, the Triassic or the the Jurassic, there's no obvious distinct. We can't say Triassic started on on a Tuesday at this point, 500 billion years ago or whatever. And the Anthropocene is the same. There's this debate over when it actually began. Well, yes. I mean, normally that period spans thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there was a very sudden, a very sudden impact when a meteor hit the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs that marked the end of one era and the beginning mm-hmm. of another. But that's kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. Actually, it takes it takes thousands of years. But but we're in this really odd situation where we're kind of living through the journey between the Holocene and the Anthropocene. And and it's only with the passage of time that we'll be able to look back in thousands, perhaps millions of years and see where that stripe in the rock is that Mm. marks our human influence. And then geologists will be able to say that's where the Anthropocene started. But we're in this really strange position now Mm -hmm. of trying to decide where does this era start? Because if we're going to call it the Anthropocene, well... You know, geologists, we all love labels. We Mm -hmm. all want to put our mark there. For geology, it's called the golden spike. It's this real spike that they put in a rock Mm -hmm. to say this is where one period starts and another finishes. So if we're going to mark this age, we do have to decide when it started and when it it finished. And that does put us in a bit of a, a bit of a problem because generally these the the beginning and ends of ages are marked because um, sediments have accumulated, mm-hmm. become solidified and turned to rock, and then they mark this difference, this band in the rock. But obviously, 
that hasn't had time to happen yet. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, maybe 50, maybe 150 years ago or whatever. We're, we're making this very arbitrary decision, essentially. So what scientists will probably do is either come up with a date mm-hmm. or they will come up with a chemical signature or a radioactive signature. So mm-hmm. so one idea is is at the end of the Second World War, there were the atomic tests. That's the first time that we have this marker for uh, radioactive cesium, for example. So, yeah. so the golden spike might be radioactive cesium. And well, I was going to say, what would this, to archaeologists in the distant future, what would the line look like, the sort of layer, even if it's incredibly, you know, minutely thin? And you just mentioned that, so it could be literally a, a layer of, of radioactivity, basically. Yeah, so, I mean, cesium's found everywhere across mm-hmm. the planet, but it's particularly accumulated in lake beds, mm-hmm. the sediments building up there, so, for example, in the Great Lakes in the United States. But there are other ideas as well, you know, um, if we look at um, the sudden injection that we've made, that humans have made of carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. that's from fossil fuels, so that's actually a different isotope of carbon dioxide that would be around naturally it's carbon um, 12 rather than 13 so we've got a different percentage if you like of carbon in the atmosphere and that's another that's another way of looking at it we don't know yet how thick this band is going to be in the rocks because Mm -hmm. we don't know how long the anthropocene will last you know i mean we could we could be wiped out by an asteroid like Mm -hmm. the dinosaurs tomorrow or we could wipe ourselves out in some horrific um, epidemic or because we run out of food Mm -hmm. or in various ways we could just the anthropocene could end very soon or you know we might survive for thousands if not maybe million years we're a very young species it's really hard to tell so we don't know how thick that band is going to be but what is very clear geologists say is that we have already left our mark we have left this indelible print we've created completely novel compounds you know from concrete to plastics pcb is everywhere Mm -hmm. to the radioactive materials where our cities are we've got an entire landscape an artificial landscape that's just made of glass concrete steel aluminium aluminium doesn't occur naturally you know Mm -hmm. we make it so all these different things and in so many ways we are leaving our mark this is now beyond debate the anthropocene title that we give it Mm -hmm. is being decided in 2016 by the international stratigraphy community they're the people that that actually decide these things Mm -hmm. the group of geologists but it it's not under debate whether or not we are leaving our mark. I think that's, that's clear enough. People are already seeing that. There, there's very many examples of that. I want to talk to you about how you would describe what the book is about then, because, I mean, I guess adventures in the Anthropocene, it's not just looking at, travelling around, looking at the human-made planet, but it is almost a elegiac, you know, looking at ways in which we might be hastening the end of this era. Well, I mean, it is looking at the way humans are changing the planet, this phenomenal change that's going on at the moment. But because we are not dinosaurs and we we are not um, meteors, you know, we are actually very complex, Mm -hmm. thinking, sentient beings, that makes things a lot more complicated because we can't measure by using physics we can't measure what our impact will be and what how this will turn out and how everybody is going to um, live or die we can't work that out purely on those ways we have to look at what it means to be human we have to look at the social impact the social determinants that are are pushing us into these different ways for everything from economics to psychology to governance to the way we live in communities Mm -hmm. and we're incredibly diverse so More than half the population now lives in cities. 
but in 1800, just 3% did. Mm -hmm. So we're undergoing this massive demographic shift. But at the same time, around the world, the people that are experiencing the fastest and most dramatic changes to their landscape and to their ways of life are the people living in the poor world. So these people live in villages, they still farm, they still live very close to the land. I mean, my ancestors have lived in a city for several generations now. So the way that we live hasn't changed that much. Mm -hmm. But these people are undergoing this massive shift, and it's their massive shift, mm -hmm. actually, which is driving the Anthropocene to a large extent. And so that's kind of what I wanted to explore. And I also wanted to see how people are responding to this changed earth, this new age that mm. we're living in, and have a look at whether it's going to be good, whether it's going to be bad, and, and, and how we can turn it around to make sure that enough of us live as many as possible live in in comfort with enough food water energy and other resources in a in a planet where such things are limited and we we, we have to recognize they are limited now and, and you've just mentioned that not much more than 100 years ago only three percent of the of the population lived in cities well, it sounds amazing but that is also history in terms of the fact that nobody is alive that was alive then so it's it's still unimaginably long ago to everybody on alive on the planet now but time and time again in the book you do meet people again a theme seems to build that you're meeting people who can remember when i was a lad there was this glacier here and now it's 14 kilometers away or something or this forest was here you know you are constantly meeting people who have seen massive changes in their own lifespan so the last 50 years has been the most dramatic change. I mean, it's called the Great Acceleration. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it has been this huge, phenomenal acceleration in change, in, in planetary change. And that's within the lifespan of, of several, mm -hmm. you know, of several of the people I speak to in the book. And within the lifetime, almost of me, but, but certainly of my parents. And, and it's a generation that's around, can remember, and, and has watched it massively change. And I think that's actually... It is really important, as you say, it's really important to get that first-hand account of mm. how very, very different it is because we can all look back and we can all read about how things were different, about how, you know, my, in my grandparents' time there were horse-pulled carts in the street. Mm. I mean, in a lot of parts of the world, that's still going on, you know. <laughs> but to, to meet people whose landscapes have utterly changed mm -hmm. but who depend and who culturally and traditionally for generations before have depended on a landscape that's different on the Holocene essentially I mean mm -hmm. we've evolved into the Holocene for the few of us that live in the rich western world it's it's you know we've had a bit of a longer time to grow accustomed to the changes but for most people they are living much more closely with a Holocene lifestyle and we still you know we still live even in in London or New York or wherever we live in a Holocene mentality you know we we live lives and our institutions and the way we the way we produce food the way we shop the way mm -hmm. we do everything is based on this holocene mentality of um, a low population plentiful resources where we can treat the atmosphere and the ocean essentially as as our sewers because they're infinitesimally large and so we can just throw whatever we want at them and, and mm -hmm. that will be dealt with well, things have changed, you know, in the Anthropocene, now we're producing so much of things that don't get degraded naturally, they don't biodegrade, or they don't degrade in a in a reasonably short time scale. And we are this enormous population now, and resources are limited, we are running out of things. So, I mean, essentially, 
everywhere all across the world we're not geared up yet psychologically mm-hmm. for the anthropocene it does take this kind of mental gear shift mm-hmm. to realize that we have to rethink everything just as people now are doing you know in in the small village where where their glacier say has disappeared i mean i mean i, I like to think of it a little bit as the aborigines who are living on australia suddenly were confronted by the first fleet who arrived they had sail power they had all these modern technologies and so the aborigines had to decide what what they were going to do about that i mean they didn't obviously get much of a choice unfortunately but um this kind of step change in culture and the step change in in realizing that everything has changed Mm -hmm was very sudden there and and we have the same situation now we we have to do that but there's nobody coming essentially from a different culture to tell us how to do it better we have to work it out ourselves and that's what makes it so challenging i suppose this is a it's lots of things but one of the aspects of it is it's a travel book it's a globe-trotting journey that you take so before we get into the book i just want to spend some time talking about logistics how did the opportunity for the book come about and then how did you decide where to go tell us something about the actual you know the nuts and bolts of the travel well so I left my job to explore basically and see what was going on out there Uh, I bought a one-way ticket to Kathmandu (laughs) because I heard about this really incredible guy that was Mm -hmm. living in Nepal in the mountains and was connecting them using a home wi-fi kit Mm -hmm. which just sounded incredible to me so i I wanted to meet him and have a look and that was the way it went really i rented out my house for six months thinking you know it might work it might not i might i got a regular column with Mm -hmm. a an american magazine and i thought well that's going to just pay the bills um i'll see if i can get it going for six months Mm -hmm. and then after six months we extended the lease and continued and i basically just freelanced my way round. So because of that, I mean, journalist fees, not brilliant. So it was the most basic trip, you know, it was just buses everywhere. It was hitchhiking. It was staying in god awful places. Like we stayed in a brothel one night, dorms in youth hostels. I mean, it was just, it was done really basically, homestays, all that sort of thing. I mean, the, the trip ended up being two and a half years mm-hmm. And then I did little bits after that to to see things to add to for my book. But I think if I was to do it again, I'd want to do it with a bit more money because oh, it was kind of, yeah. I mean, there's no glamour in really cheap <laughs> travel. It's really uncomfortable. I've got every disease going. Yeah. I'm Dylan Evans. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Gaia Vince and we're talking about her book Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made. Let's get into the book. So the book is it's split into chapters wherein you, you sort of take the theme of a, a type, I guess, a geographical feature. Mm. Um, and we'll go through in the next few parts of the show, we're, we're going to look at some of those aspects in more detail. But let's start off 
talking about in the first chapter you look at the atmosphere and this is interesting because the atmosphere you know the warming of the atmosphere is something that obviously links pretty much every other chapter in the book there's no escaping from the fact that this all-encompassing atmosphere has an effect on on all of the other aspects so well, let's talk about what's going on with the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you know, you may have heard of global warming, <laughs> climate change. But yeah, this is one of the biggest and most defining elements of our time, this big shift in climate. I mean, we were talking earlier about um, the Jurassic and about, about previous um, geological ages. A lot of them are defined by their climate. Mm -hmm. They're either very, very warm or very, very cold. They're either ice ages or places of deserts or, or it's, the atmosphere is very warm and sticky. I mean, we are undergoing an incredible climate change at the moment, which it's kind of hard to get, get your head around in a lot of ways because it might not feel warmer every day, but actually the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere mm -hmm. is very likely to be the fastest rate of change, fastest uh, acceleration in 65 million years. I mean, that's really quite incredible. And carbon dioxide is a gas which is, it's invisible to visible light. So we can see through it. We can't see mm -hmm. carbon dioxide, but it's opaque to infrared. So what it does is it traps heat in the atmosphere and heat trapped in the atmosphere then warms the surface of the earth but it also warms the surface of the oceans mm -hmm. and all that heat gets distributed around and it's it's an enormous amount of energy that's trapped there and that energy that new energy input affects various things so one one of the effects of this energy imbalance is extreme weather and we're experiencing that already mm -hmm. we're, we're having a, a massive hike in extreme weather events and that affects people of course because we're quite coastal we live on coasts mm -hmm. and we live in river deltas that's where civilization started so these extreme weather events lead to more flooding they lead to um, bigger coastal erosion they lead to crop failures and ultimately, even though we think we can just go to the supermarket and there'll be food there, that food's going to go up in price and it's already going up in price. And that has a trickle down effect on everything because mm. food is a necessity that we can't live without. So we're living at this very extreme time and it's having some other strange effects. So the warmer temperatures mean that mountain ecosystems are changing, for example. So mountains are quite interesting because... They have, normally, if, if you want to experience a different temperature, you have to go up or down in, in latitude. So if you go to the Arctic, it's very cold. If you go to the equator, it's very hot mm -hmm. and vice versa. But if you go up a mountain, you can experience those dramatic temperature changes mm -hmm. just because of the altitude you're going at. And this is changing as well. So normally what used to happen is that in the tropics or wherever you have mountains, there would be snow and ice at the top mm -hmm. because they're much colder. But that's actually melting now so these big glacier stores the store of free fresh water is disappearing which is affecting everything ecosystems mm -hmm. the other thing with temperature changes actually is that um, crops that used to only grow below a certain altitude are growing further up so there used to be the so-called tree line mm -hmm. which was this very very visible line of of where uh, vegetation could sort of creep above or below and, and now that's blurring that's becoming much much more different and because of the extreme temperatures now we're getting a lot more forest fires so 
a lot of these mountains are very dry. <laughs> they can be desert-like because precipitation only falls on one flank of the mountain mm-hmm. because of the way clouds go across them and so on. And so they're prey to forest fires now, and, and that's changing the way people live. It's changing the kinds of animals that live there. It's changing how people farm and, and whether or not they live on mountains. And a lot of people can no longer live on mountains, and they have to migrate to cities or, or down land because there's just, there's just not enough water. That's the biggest problem with mountains. The atmosphere is it's so just unimaginably big that people often have trouble believing that we could have had an effect. But interestingly, a concept that comes up time and time through the book, it's linked in a lot of the chapters, but I want to talk about the actual concept now, is a way in which we could in another way, affect something as huge as the atmosphere. I'm talking about the concept of geoengineering, so ways in which we could artificially put things in the atmosphere to change the weather in localised places and stuff. It's an amazing idea, obviously in lots of ways quite quite controversial, but is this something that's going to... Well, tell us what geoengineering is, first of all, and then we'll talk about its uses. So, I mean, to a certain extent, we are already geoengineering. Mm -hmm. We are engineering the planet to make it different. So we're already geoengineering the atmosphere Mm -hmm. to make it warmer. We've put off the next ice age, which, you know, we were heading towards another ice age very slowly. That's now, whoosh, postponed. I mean, that's not going to happen. So we're already geoengineering the planet, and... The problem is this global warming situation is actually putting a lot of people's lives in danger. A lot of people have already lost their lives because of extreme weather events, because of crop failures and so on. So it's an emergency. You know, Mm -hmm. how are we going to get out of this? I mean, ideally, we would stop emitting CO2. But first of all, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Secondly, even if we did do that, the longevity of CO2 in the atmosphere, the, the, the length of time it persists in the atmosphere before it's broken down, is so long, it's, it's a matter of centuries, mm-hmm. that it's not going to change tomorrow, even if we were completely, even if we were annihilated tomorrow, the whole human species, and so we couldn't emit mm-hmm. CO2, the atmosphere would still continue to be warm for many centuries. So that brings us to the geoengineering ideas. You know, what, what are we going to do about this? What, how are we going to artificially lower the temperatures again so one idea is to suck co2 out of the atmosphere to remove it i mean that would be brilliant wouldn't it forests already do that plants do that naturally through photosynthesis algae does that but various people are looking at ways of speeding that natural process up and another way of lowering the temperature is to reflect back the sun's heat so not so much of it hits the earth and gets trapped in the atmosphere by the carbon dioxide so um places that already do that naturally are big ice sheets Mm -hmm. you know they're very reflective they're white they're very reflective um we're reducing the number of those and their ability to do that so people have had various ideas of increasing that so one way is to perhaps plant light colored crops another one is to paint the roofs of um, buildings in cities white there's various schemes more outlandish ones are to put space mirrors to reflect the sun's you know in orbit to reflect the sun's heat that way i mean these deserve serious consideration because it's such an emergency i don't know if any of them are going to come to fruition but we are already doing to a certain extent some of these things you know, I, I met a guy who was painting a mountain white in Peru. I mean, which just seems 
like the sign of a very, very desperate person. And, and he is really desperate. You know, he's an alpaca farmer mm-hmm. whose glacier has disappeared on his mountain. It's melted. And that was the glacier that fed his alpaca pastures, watered his alpaca pastures. And without the pasture, without the water, the alpaca are dying and he will have to move. You mm-hmm. know, he will have to move to a city. But that's his... That's his village, you know, that's where his ancestors are buried, that's where he, he lives, that's where he wants to continue to live with his family. You know, what would they do in the city? They're not, they don't have the skills or the money to survive in a city. They would just end up being part of the great diaspora. That so, so he's painting his mountain white in the hope that the increased reflectivity of the mountain will help whatever precipitation falls there to mm. freeze because it will be colder. He's having some success, apparently, how practical is that across the whole of the Andean chain? I don't know. I mean, at the moment, I would say, yeah, it's laughable. But, you know, we're going to have to seriously consider things like this if we're going to solve the problems that we're faced with, because these are planetary problems. You know, they're not just little local problems. You mentioned talking about geoengineering and the guy who was trying to paint the mountain to try and try and create an artificial glacier. And you meet somebody else who's got a different way of artificially creating glaciers where glaciers once were and and have melted. So in Ladakh, which is this incredibly beautiful part of the Himalayas, Mm -hmm. it's it's actually in India, but it's a contested territory Mm -hmm. between China, India, Pakistan. I mean, the people are Tibetan, so they Mm -hmm. don't really fit in any of those categories. It's also a desert. It's a high-altitude desert. Mm -hmm. Uh, They get very little precipitation, about the same as the Sahara. And... The people that live there rely on glacier melt to water their crops, and without that, they don't have they don't have their their one crop a year of usually barley to live on. So it's a, it's um, the glaciers are incredibly important there, and they're also melting. So I went there, and it's in, it's a beautiful place, but it's very hard to breathe because it's really really high up. But obviously not hard to breathe for the people who live there <laughs> because they've completely adapted to it. But from there, I actually met this retired railway engineer who had been working he was in his 70s and he's been working in the sort of region for years he started off as a railway engineer and then he helped with roads road building and so on and he kept coming across this big problem you know that the glaciers were melting what are they going to do about water and then one day when he was really really um almost oppressed by the problem you know he'd had a lot of people coming to him and these are the clans across this, these mountains are actually very closely related. You know, everybody knows somebody from one village, even though the villages might be isolated. And while he was wrestling with this big problem, he noticed that a little pipe was leaking drips of water. And where it had dripped, where the stream of the drips had gone into a depression, a natural depression that happened to be in shadow because it was beneath a wall, they'd frozen and formed ice whereas the rest of it was just soaked into the ground or had evaporated off. And from that, he came up with this idea that what he would do was create essentially artificial glaciers in the mountains where near where the glaciers had originally been but he would create them in the in the shadow of the mountain mm-hmm. because the sun when the sun rises in the winter months, it barely makes it over the top over the crest of some of these mountains. So he dug out, with the help of villagers, these shallow troughs. He created something to slow down precipitation, you know, little walls, culverts, little channels. 
And in that way, he managed to make these very shallow step-down pools in the shadow of the mountain. And the great thing is that because they're so high up and in the shadow, they, they melt, they froze mm-hmm. over the winter. And then when the sun peaked just across the ridge and hit the, um, the artificial glacier during April, it was at the perfect time mm-hmm. to melt the water for the, uh, the fresh sowing of the seeds further down in the village. So, so it all worked really, really well. And what, what he's done is actually bring life back into these villages. He's made at least 12 now, I think perhaps more than that, um, since I spoke to him. And these and are quite big. I mean, they're not glacier they're enormous. big. But they're, 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 well, they're, no, they're, they're not on the size of a glacier <laughs> and they're not comparable really to a glacier because glaciers are metres thick, mm-hmm. you know. They're these movable ice huge they're monsters of ice glaciers i mean in comparison it's nothing but it's it's enough mm-hmm. it's water storage and it's the size of i guess you call it a lake mm-hmm. a frozen lake shallow frozen lake and it, it makes a huge difference because people they're actually um experiencing in that region um the warmer temperatures in addition now to the artificial glaciers so they're now able to sow many different crops before they were restricted just to barley or perhaps to potatoes, but now they can grow things like tomatoes because the temperature is so much higher there that they're able to grow different types of vegetables. And they were suffering this big problem of the this unique and very beautiful community disappearing. I mean, they're, they're very traditional. They still wear traditional clothes. They speak Ladakhi. It's a very sing-songy language. The women wear wear two plaits. I mean, it's it's... It's a really beautiful tradition, and, mm-hmm. and they were losing enormous numbers of people to Delhi or Mumbai because there was nothing for them there, and now people are actually coming back, and the community feels a little bit stronger there. It's amazing what water can do. We're nearly finished, but at this point, I guess the normal question to ask you would be, you know, what can be done? What should we be doing? It's a ridiculously big and an unwieldy and unfair question to ask. So I, I, I want to say instead... What's the sort of main takeaway point from the book? If people read this book, what do you want them to go away from it with? An awareness of our power. I mean, we are really, really remarkable. We are changing a planet, and that's quite phenomenal. But also, we're incredibly ingenious. I mean, all these stories, they're of these incredible people, these really remarkable people. But they're remarkable partly for who they are, of course, but also because of the circumstances that have been they've been thrust into essentially i mean they're living at an extraordinary time but we're all living at that time and and there are remarkable people among us i hope that we take from that some sort of inspiration so that's been adventures in the anthropocene a journey to the heart of the planet we made by gaia vince and it's out now from chatter and windows book so gaia thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it thank you it's been great you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.